Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the City Baptist Church podcast. This week's message is from our current teaching series, The Called, God at Work Through His People. In this series, we will follow the lives of Elijah and Elisha, ordinary men who were called to stand for the one true God in a pagan and godless society. We would love to have you join us for a service in person. You can find all the information you need on our website at citybaptist.church. Last week we had our Vision Sunday, of course, and I preached to you from the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. So let's go there again today, because basically what I'm going to do over the next seven weeks is we're going to take that message that I preached, uh, and we're going to expand it into a series on the life of Elijah and Elisha, and we're calling the series The Called, God at Work Through His People. And so what we're going to be looking at the next seven weeks are uh, life stories and lessons that we can see from Elijah and Elisha. Two men who the Bible describes, as we saw last week in James chapter 5 or 17, talking about Elijah anyway, described them as ordinary men. Men with like passions such as we are, but men who I believe completely devoted themselves to the Lord and God used them in just an incredible, incredible, remarkable way. So much so we're talking about them today, right? How great would it be if people were talking about us in 2,000 years, right? You're like, the world will never last. That is true. That is true. But uh, imagine uh, having such a testimony that the Lord chose to record that for us and teach us lessons all of these years um, later. And so we're going to, throughout the series, we're going to look at uh, the power of God at work in their lives. And that's the big focus of it. It's not on these men, but it's on what God did with their lives. And so that's going to be the focus as we move through uh, really the book of 1 Kings. We'll move um, through the book from 17 on. Um, But last week we saw in the life of Elijah That before he became the prophet that we know him as today, before he became the prophet of Mount Carmel, uh, God had to take him to a place of total dependence. And that's what we saw last week is God took him to the the brook. You remember he separated him. He went to Ahab and he told him "There's there's a drought coming, a famine's coming to Israel. You've rejected God enough. The famine's coming. And so then God took him to a place where all there was was this brook, and God was sending those Uber Eats ravens, remember? And he was bringing those ravens over, and they were bringing him meat, and they were bringing him uh, di- uh, bread and things that he could eat, and God was sustaining him during his time, separated from God completely, and he had to, uh, and he had to have dependence upon God. But then we saw last week how God took him to an even greater place of dependence. He sent him into enemy territory. He sent him to the home of Jezebel, the home country of Jezebel. And he sent him to a widow woman who had nothing at all. Literally all she had was enough to make a cake for her and her son to eat and then die. The famine was that great. And God sent him to her and he said to her, hey, before you and your son die, why don't you give me that food first? Man, oh, crazy. We're going to read over that again in just a minute. And, uh, and she did, and then God, of course, miraculously provided for them. But the point that we saw is God took him from a place of dependence where there was a brook, there was water, but that dried up. And then God took him to a place and to a person specifically where, who had absolutely nothing at all. And the only way that you could account for what was taking place was the miracle of God. The fact that it was God completely providing for him. And, and Elijah, we see, had to come to a place of total and complete dependence upon God. And that's where each of us need to be. Before God can use us, before God can do something through your life, you've got to get to that point of dependence upon him. Now, does God use us when we're not dependent on him? Of course. God's used me when I've had sin in my heart before. But I'll tell you what, if you want to reach your maximum potential as a believer, if you want to see God do something unique in your life and in your family, you've got to get to that point of dependence. And so God saw that Elijah was now trusting him. He put him in these positions where he had to trust him even more. 
But the thing I want us to remember is that God is preparing Elijah through all of this for something big. And when you think of Elijah, you think of the showdown at Mount Carmel, don't you? You think of those 450 prophets of Baal that he stood up against. You, you remember how he called down fire from God. And we're going to look at that next week. I'm very excited about that message already. We're going to try to like get some fire in here or something. And so we'll... Uh, so, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know about that, but uh, we'll like, you know, you are the false prophets and then and, and we'll have some sort of showdown. No, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. It's going to be a great time. <laughs> um, but God was preparing him for this thing, but, but you got to remember where he's at now. Elijah didn't know any of that. Elijah didn't have a clue what God was going to do with him because God was, he, he was in a difficult position, but we as Christians, we look at scripture and say, okay, God's preparing him for something, something bigger to come. And, and I just want to say at the beginning today, that's what's happening maybe in your life right now. Maybe God is preparing you for something big through the trials and the challenges that you're facing right now. He might be preparing you for, hi for him to do something unique in your life because that's how God works. All right, so let's pick it up where we left off last week. We're going to look at verse number 8, and uh, we're going to read uh, down through verse number 16 just to sort of refresh us, and then we'll get to uh, the bulk of today's message. So in verse number 8, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, so he's at the brook. Look at, if you look at verse 7 there, it says, Came to pass after a while, the brook dried up, there no rain. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. In verse number 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. In verse number 11, and as she was going to fetch it, he called her and he said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. Now just think for a minute. It's a drought. There's not been any rain for months and months and months. He says, hey, give me some water. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Have you noticed it hasn't rained in a while? Ah, all, give me some water. Oh, 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 hey, why, you ever do that to your uh, spouse, guys? Probably guys do this more than anything else, right? Like, like oh, oh, like, you know, Jeanette, she's like, you know, we're talking. She gets like, oh, I got to go, you know, take a look at the kid. Oh, oh, while you're up, can you get me a bagel toasted double-sided with, uh, you know, cream cheese on one side? No. <laughs> uh, maybe go to the store and pick up. No, no, don't do that, right? But that's what it's like. He say, and she, I mean, she has nothing. And he says, hey, while you're out there, why don't you also get me uh, some food as well? Verse 12, and she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, she knew he was a prophet. I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little cruise, uh, oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, uh, son that we may eat it and die. Now, I don't know if she yelled that to him as she was walking away. But that's pretty dire circumstances right there. I mean, you already asked me for water. It's been a drought. If, I ha if she had any water, it would have been very limited in supply. But then he says, go and make me some food. And she says, no, no, no. I only have enough for me and my son. We're going to die. This is it. This is all we have. Is everything. Verse number 13. Elijah said unto her, Fear not. Go. Oh, yeah, that really helps, right? You ever had somebody say that? Don't worry. It's just a roller coaster. Don't worry. You'll be fine. That's how my wife gets me on roller coasters. Oh, okay, sure. It'll be fine. Oh, it is not fine. He said, Fear not. Go and do as thou hast said. But make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me. And after, make for thee and for thy son. Is Elijah a jerk? Kind of looks like it. Kind of looks like he is. Well, no, some bigger things are happening here, right? Verse number 14. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Man, what an incredible story. 
He said, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of you. He's going to replenish it. And sure enough, God does. To me, we see this. What an amazing story about God providing in a drought in an enemy village in Baal's hometown. Remember, there's a lot of, uh, do you worship Baal or do you worship God going on here? And in, in his hometown there in Zarephath, where Baal worship, that pagan worship was coming from into, uh, into Israel, God did an incredible miracle. And he provided, and it's an amazing story. And I wish that we could just stop right there and be like, God is awesome right? But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Because God is still trying to do something in all of this. You know, we look at it and we say, man, isn't it bad enough that she's in a drought and that God provided for her in the drought? Man, what a wonderful God we serve. But wait, God has more here. And for you right now, you may be in a drought in your life right now, and then God may step in and provide for you. But you know what? There might be another thing coming, (laughs) There might be something else coming. I've had that before in my life where I've gone through a tough time and God's provided and I'm like, man, great, we're through. And then something else comes. Well, God has something bigger at plan. God has something big going on. And that's what we see here because God isn't done with Israel. Remember, Israel's a nation that had been in a civil war that had split the nation into two different parts, the northern kingdom and then Judah, of course. The northern kingdom uh, had turned to worshiping false god in part by Jezebel bringing her pagan worship with her and all the different worship uh, of different gods, and they had become a country that was led by rick, uh, wicked rulers, and they worshiped false idols and all of those things. They had turned their back on God, but I want you to notice that God wasn't done with them yet, though. God wasn't finished with them. He hadn't given up for them, in them, and so through Elijah, God begins to build a case uh, that begins, I believe, right here at this, this part of, uh, of Scripture, where he begins to prove his power, where he begins to draw an entire nation back to him. And, and the thing that I see that just so loudly speaks to me in this passage is that, you know, when you're away from God, he doesn't give up on you either. So many times in my life, and maybe for some of you right now, you're kind of away from the Lord. You're not, maybe not being faithful in, in, in your walk with him. Maybe you're making decisions that are actually pulling you away from him. Can I just tell you this morning, God is not finished with you, okay? He's not going to give up on you. He's going to constantly pursue you. He's going to come after you. He's going to bring things into your life. He's going to allow things to happen that would point you back to him. And that's what's happening here with Israel. They had turned their back. I mean, it's been 200 years of bad kings. You remember that? 200 years. But yet God still cares about them. God still is pursuing them. And he's starting the ball rolling here at this beginning part. And it may look like a difficulty. It may look like a drought. And it was, by the way. It may look challenging and it may look hard. But God had something bigger that was going on. And so as we continue the story today, we're going to see three aspects that I believe God is trying to show to the people of Israel. He's trying to prove to them that he is the one true God, that he is the God worth worshiping. And my goal for us as, as, a, as a church today is that we would find renewed strength in these truths as well. Maybe for some of you right now, you're feeling a little distance from the Lord. You're feeling like he's not really active in your life right now. I hope that today you'll recognize that he is working. He is doing something. Something is happening, and, uh, and he is uh, trying to show it to you in his love and his will for your life, even if life seems confusing right now for some of you. Life se- uh, by the way, let's just, let's just make it easy. It's confusing for all of us, isn't it? <laughs> it's totally confusing for us. It's not what we thought it would be. 
And so we're going to show that today in the, in the passage as we continue. But I want to begin with one aspect about our God that we see not only in the previous passage we read, but then also going forward. I just want to kind of give it as a general observation. And the thing that I want us to see, first of all, this morning is that God loves the outsider. I just want to, I just want to prove that here real quickly um, through the passage we see, that God loves the outsider. This is a wonderful thing about our God, that he loves those that maybe others push aside. That he loves those that maybe are not, uh, not seen as, as the best. <laughs> Listen, it is only by the loving grace of a true God that he would send somebody to provide help through the drought and the famine to this woman, this widow woman. Think about it. That is the grace of God that we see, that he would send Elijah to her. See, in all aspects, this woman that we've learned about was an outsider. Just a couple of things. She was a Gentile, first of all, and so to Elijah... I mean, they were, you know, taught and from, from the very beginning that Gentiles were the, you know, the wrong people, right? Only the Jews were God's uh, chosen people and they were uh, resisted that. And so racially, she was an outsider. She was a pagan worshiper living in that town where she was in Zarephath and Zidon. I mean, it was known for its pagan worship. And so more than likely, that would have been a part of her life, uh, life of course. And so uh, religiously to the Jews and to Elijah, she would have been an outsider. Uh, she was a woman, which in those days meant you were a bit of a gender outsider, um, even though the word of God constantly lifts up women and even though it constantly promotes equality amongst them. In those days, to be a woman was kind of a, a not, not a great side. And the fact that she was a widow meant she was an economic outsider. So gender-wise, and then she was a widow. I mean, she couldn't work certain jobs and there was all of these difficulties. And so by just everything that we see about her, she was an outsider because to this woman, she had no standing. She couldn't pay for anything. She was about to die. She had nothing left. And then God sends somebody to help her out. How cool is that? Man, that is the grace of God that we see in her life. And it's because God loves the outcasts of the world. Those that maybe everybody else would look past. I think all you have to do is look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter number one, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and you would recognize that there are people, there are names of people in the line of leading up to Jesus Christ whose lives were full of dysfunction, complete dysfunction. There are names of people that you wouldn't even go to dinner with if they asked you and promised to pay. I mean, in the line of Jesus Christ, think about it. I mean, Rahab the what? Harlot. <laughs> Rahab the prostitute is in the line of Jesus Christ. Jacob the deceiver. I mean, I know that he was, but if he invited me out for porridge or for soup, I'm not going, you know. <laughs> I want to keep my birthright, you know. I'm not going, right? I mean, he was a deceptive guy. I mean, there was Ruth who was a Moabite. There was Bathsheba who committed adultery. I mean, we often put the blame on David, and yes, but there was two to tango, right? I mean, there was someone in there. These people are in uh, the line of Jesus Christ. This is the family history of Jesus, and in a day where your family history was so important, it was so important that some kings would actually remove people from their genealogies in order to make it look like everybody just had everything together in their whole life. It is in this kind of environment, and this kind of uh, line, that we see Jesus Christ coming from. And these people are not only uh, included, but in some respects, they're celebrated. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about that. They're people of faith. And so we see these people with terrible past and all of these things that they did. Uh, so why are they included in the timeline of Jesus Christ? And here's why. Here's why. I believe that they are included in the timeline of Jesus, all these people who had dysfunction and problems and sin, so that for us today, we can actually comprehend that our names could be included in the line after Christ. We look at the line leading up to Christ, we say, wow, there's dysfunction and problems, all these things, and sin, okay, so maybe he can be my savior. 
Okay, maybe he can be my father. Okay, I can be included in that line after him. What a wonderful thought that is. What a wonderful thought that he shows to us his desire uh, to save us through his miraculous grace. You see Abraham, the father of Israel, right next to Gentile prostitutes, and it's because in Christ we are equals. There's no sin you can do. There's no past that you have that can keep you or separate you from the love of Jesus Christ, and there's room in his family for you. There's room in his family for you. How many of you would say this morning, I'm thankful that God included me in his family? Man, I am. Man, I am. And we can see that through his line. It's interesting, when Jesus preached this, and he talked about this idea, they tried to kill him because the Jews always wanted a God who would reward their good deeds. But God always said, and Mark chapter uh, 2 and verse 17 says, they that are whole that have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. And notice he said, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That is the heart of God, to pursue those on the outside. And God has always loved, God has always been a friend of sinners. And if he wasn't, we wouldn't be here today. And that's really what it is. Our salvation is not based on our good works. It's not based on our religious lifestyle. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And just as the father wrapped his arms around the prodigal son when he returned home and repented in the same way, it does not matter your past when you come to Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and you turn to him in faith, he'll wrap his arms around you and restore you as a son and as a daughter. It does not matter how broken our past is. We simply must trust in him today and so I got to ask you at the beginning we know this we know that he's the God of the outsider but one I wonder are you the Christian of the outsider are you a Christian of the outsider are you the kind of person who uh, desires to see people come to Christ are you the kind of person who lives your life so that others would be uh, drawn to him how many unsaved people are on your prayer list I was challenged with this thought uh, this week but if God answered all of your prayers from last week how many people would be saved today or would there just be a lot of healthy Christians because they overcame their, their, their issues that we prayed for? I'm going to say that again because I think it really impacted me this week. If God answered all my prayers from this week, how many unsaved people would be in heaven right now? Maybe not right now. They're still alive, hopefully, right? <laughs> you know what I mean. But how many people would know Christ as their Savior or would there just be a lot of healthy Christians? We are to be people who reflect the heartbeat of God, aren't we? And so in us, there should be a desire and a passion for those on the outside. God loves the outsider, and we see this so clearly in this passage. But I want us to see as well as we kind of continue now in the story, point number two this morning, God's ways are not our ways. Don't you love that? Man, it's one of those cliche things we say, the Lord's ways are not our ways. I hate that. <laughs> but it's key to understanding, and it's key to understanding the heart of God, and it's key to living in peace, by the way not trying to make it all about our ways. Let's look at verse number 17 and verse number 18. And it came to pass after these things, what things? Replenish the oil, right? She's feeding her family. Everything's good. There's a drought, sure, but God's providing. After these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. What a nice way to say he's dead. He's dead. It's a nice way of saying he died. Now, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought God was taking care of her, right? I thought, man, she's through the, the hard part. She's at least going to survive. Okay, her son dies. Verse 18. She said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Now, that's a strong statement. 
Have you come into my life to bring to remembrance my, my sins? Is my son dead now because of the sins of my past? What are you doing? You came. I thought everything was going to be fine. I thought that God was using you and he provided this. And now my son is dead. The son that just maybe months ago I had been worried about and saving every last bit of food I could find. And now God has provided and now he's dead. What, what is going on? What is going on? I'm sure she had some hope they were going to survive the famine. But then we have this tragic moment. She's overcome with emotion. She finds Elijah. I don't know where he was, but I can imagine her just walking towards him, you know. And he's like, huh, I wonder what's up with her. And she goes after him and comes to him and then asks, am I being punished because of my past sins? You ever felt that way in life? Is what I'm going through right now a punishment for my past sins? Is it a punishment? She's confused. Why would God save us and then allow this thing to happen? Interestingly enough, Elijah had the same questions. Look at verse number 19. And he said unto her, give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. Look, look what happens. This is the, I mean, this is the prophet here. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? You see the confusion going on here? You see the lack of understanding? Listen, if the prophet Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, goes through moments of confusion and understanding, guess what? You and I will as well. So to think that our situations are unique, sometimes our confusion about what God is doing, our wondering what is happening, to think that it's unique to us is not unique at all, in fact. It's been since the beginning of God's people, people have been confused and wondering what's going on. I want you to notice here, though, what they don't do. She blames Elijah. Elijah says, what's going on? But neither, neither of them blame God. You see that? Neither of them turn to God and say like, you know, God, why are you doing the, this to us and all these kind of things? This woman here, and I, I want to break this down just real quickly. She acknowledges her sinfulness. She acknowledges that, you know, God had every right to allow this. They just are questioning. They're saying, what's going on? Uh, they try to explain it away with her, aunt, with, um, you know, is it her sin maybe? But in spite of all of these things that are taking place, the thing that we both see them do, or at least especially Elijah, is that he goes to God and he just asks for his help. He appeals to the mercy of God. He appeals to, um, to him and asks for help with humble faith, realizing that God often does things that we don't understand. It's interesting, about 100 years later, the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 55, 8. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Just about 100 years, after, 100 years after this story, I don't know, maybe he was looking back at this. I don't know, who knows, when he wrote this. But he recognized that when it comes to God, his thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways. Here's the truth about our faith this morning that we've got to get, uh, get in, our, in our hearts. You know, for many people, if God does not do exactly what they think he should do, they lose their faith. Maybe you've walked through that season in your own life. Maybe there's been a time where you thought God should do something a certain way and he didn't do it and then your faith became weak and you struggled in that. Somebody said this, uh, that a God who conforms to your mind is usually just a projection of your mind. <laughs> and I thought that was very profound as well. And so, so many people try to uh, create or they try to say, oh, this is how God should be. But I think one of the ways we know God is the one true God is the fact that he doesn't operate according to us. He doesn't do the things that we think he should do. If I invented God, God would always reward the righteous, wouldn't he? <laughs> if I invented God, he'd take care of all the people I like. 
I mean, you guys would all be like driving really nice cars. If I invented God, that's what happened. You guys would all just be like, man, it'd be, it'd be a wonderful time. We'd have a huge bill. You know, all these things, right? You think of these things. If I invented God, of course. But the fact that he does not do things in my way shows us that he is the true God. God doesn't work in that way. And what God really desires for us is that we would be people who simply have humble faith. And I believe humble faith is the kind of faith that's okay with us not understanding what God's doing. Part of a life of faith is that you realize that, you know what, I just have to be okay with God being who he is. I got to be okay with that. So much anxiety comes into our lives when we try to force God or we try to figure out why God does what he does. Just, I don't know, have some faith, right? Have some faith. He may be trying to reveal to you something down the road. There's been things that God showed me in my life later on that I didn't see at the time. I was even upset about at the time. I was hurt maybe at the time. I was, I was sorrowing at the time. But God then revealed a greater thing to me later on. At the time, I was like, what are you doing? I don't get this. Why aren't you, why aren't you fit? Why are, why are things going, going this way? But then later on, I understood. See, this kind of faith that is okay with not understanding God is a faith that we admire in other people. But we don't want to have it in our own lives. Right? We admire other people of faith who maybe are going through a hard time and they're just like, hey, I'm just trusting God through this. I don't know what he has, but I'm trusting him. And we're like, wow, slow clap, right? Like, man, your faith is awesome. And then we have a challenge and we're like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, what are you doing to me? You know, and we're in this like, and we're so frustrated. But we have to remember that people who are willing to live with the unknown and have faith, they never cease to believe in the goodness of God. And that's the thing we got to remember. Listen, it's okay to have questions and say, Lord, what are you doing? But you should never doubt the goodness of God in your life. So many times throughout scripture, I just jotted down really quickly some names. I was thinking about it. People in scripture who had great faith and still believed in God, even though they were in a trial. Joseph in prison. Joseph in a pit. <laughs> Joseph sold. Joseph in prison. But yet he never doubted the goodness of God. He continued to follow after him. Moses at the edge of the Red Sea. Lord, you rescued us. You brought us to this point, And now there's a sea. There's an army behind us. What are we going to do? Right? Man, I'm sure he would have had some troubles. Joshua at Jericho. Look at this place. You want me to do what? Seven times? What? I don't understand. Walk around? Horns? <laughs> what are you talking about, Lord? It's not a concert. You know, like what are you trying to do here? Uh, David facing Goliath. Okay, now I'm in the situation. You know, I was all bold and brass and I brought, you know, I brought some stuff, but now you want me to face this guy? Peter in prison. I love that story. I have to preach that sometime. Peter in prison and how God rescued him. But I mean, you could go on and on and on. So many people who are in challenging situations, yet through all of it, they never stopped believing that God was good, even with the unanswered questions that they had. What in your life right now is not going as you planned? What in your life right now is turning out in a different way? Maybe it's not happening the way you think it should go. Listen, will you still trust God in that? Will you still trust him in those challenging times? Will you humbly come before him and trust his care for you? Because I believe when we surrender our own will to whatever his will is for us, that is when God can then begin to reveal his ultimate wills for our life and start to show us and prove to us what he is trying to do. And so to this woman and to Elijah, God is doing something big in the whole situation, but they don't see it right now. They're like, what? Okay, God, what are you doing? She's blaming Elijah because of my sins that my son died. He's saying to the Lord, why would you allow this to happen? We don't understand. And then we see point number three then this morning, God saves through death. That may sound like a contradiction. <laughs> we'll explain that here in a moment. Look at verse number 21. We'll continue the story. 
says, and he stretched himself. This is Elijah. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Now this whole situation is rather mysterious. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it, isn't it? You read this and you're like, what is going on? It's kind of strange. Now there's some unique symbolism. I'll talk about that here in a second. But what is God doing here? Why is the first recorded person in Scripture to be resurrected from the dead, why does it happen to the son of a pagan widow woman in a city known for Baal worship, a region of the wicked queen of Israel? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. See, God is trying to show something here, isn't he? He's trying to prove something to this woman he's trying to prove something to the city i think he's trying to prove something to elijah as well and that is the fact that he is the one true god and the way that he does it is by doing something that no pagan god can do no false religion can ever do and that he's he can bring life to someone who is dead and he shows to us here the power that god has over death he goes right into Baal's backyard and he says can you do this <laughs> can you do this Baal?" <laughs> Can you do this false uh, religions? Can you do this false prophets? Can you do this? It's so interesting. This is so cool. In the first message that Jesus preached in Luke chapter number four, he references this very story of Elijah. This is super cool. And the very first message he preaches in Luke chapter number four, uh, and then they tried to kill him. It's kind of, it's a whole nother story, you know? They tried to kill him. And then it was so funny is that one of the first miracles he ever does in Luke chapter number seven is that he heals and raises to life the dead son of a widow woman. Now, this is some really cool parallels. I'll, I'll let you figure that out on your own, okay? So go to Luke, write that down. Luke chapter four, Luke chapter seven. It's kind of interesting uh, what Christ says there, but it's almost like Jesus retraced Elijah's steps in a way, and he's addressing the same question at the very beginning part of his ministry, and that is this, God saves. The true God can save. Now, the scene here is very interesting. Uh, Elijah, he takes his son, he takes him to, to his, uh, his room there, which was in her house. And uh, he, put, he lays him on the bed. And then the Bible tells us that he stretches himself over him three times. Now this, it's just kind of weird, right? We can, be, we can be honest. It's like, this is sort of a strange thing. I don't know what's going on here. I, I don't, like, why would he decide, like, oh, I'll stretch myself over him three times. Like, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if there's a prompting of God. I don't really understand this. Okay, just so you know. I'm just telling you, it's mysterious, like I said. But it's almost as if, as he stretches himself, there's some interesting, even wording here. He stretches. Later on, uh, Jesus, when he talked to Peter, he said that you will be stretched out on a cross. Remember, Peter was crucified on a cross as well. Interesting, some interesting thoughts here. But it's almost as if as he is being, as he stretches himself over this, this, this boy, I, I don't think, I mean, immediately you think like he like laid on him. I don't think that was the case. I think he was maybe standing next to the bed where he was. And somehow he stretched over him, but it's almost this idea of that. He was almost absorbing that death into his own, into his own life. I, I don't know. There's, there's, who knows what really was going on here. 
But it's a mysterious thing. Now, of course, prophets, of course, they often acted out as much as they spoke out. They would do some really interesting things. If you just look up crazy, just Google crazy things prophets did. And there's some really interesting actions that they all took. And so he did this, though. He stretched out over them. And then here we see this first person ever in Scripture being raised from the dead. There's a couple things I don't want to miss real quickly. Remember, the whole account begins with the woman saying, did my son die because of my sins? That's what she said. Is it because of my sins that my son is dead. Of course, the answer to that is no, your son cannot die for your sins. Of course, one day God's son would die for her sins, right? And die for our sins as well. And then Elijah here as God's representative stretches himself almost as if taking the death into himself. And the Bible says that God then gave him back his soul. Now there's a great picture here of what Christ did for us on the cross. You, you can't help but miss it out. Uh, miss it. That by dying in our place, as Christ stretched himself on the cross, as he absorbed the penalty of our sin and our death into himself, he made it then possible for all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We've got to recognize that this is one of the greatest miracles in all of scripture, that this child's soul came to him again and he was revived. Now stay with me here for a moment because we are all dead ourselves, aren't we not? We are lost sinners. We are dead in trespasses and sins. If we have trusted Christ, then what we can say is that I was crucified with him. 2,000 years ago, he died, we died with him. He was raised, and we were raised with him. We are joined to the living Christ today, and if we're not joined to him, we then are nothing. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, notice, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, God saves us us through death and through his death he broke sin's power but our hope of course as christians today is not in a dead savior it is in a savior who is very much alive because he rose from the grave three days later and like this son was taken i believe as this son was taken and placed before his mother as proof of god's power in the same way the risen savior is placed before us today in scripture to prove to us the power of almighty god and the fact that if he has the power over death then he can most certainly save us in our sins and he paid the penalty for us. And what he is doing in this whole passage, and I want you to understand this morning, is that God is just calling us to trust him. That's all he's doing. He's proving to these people his power, and he's trying to prove to you today and maybe remind you today that he is all-powerful. He is God. And he saved you from your sins. And guess what? He's here for you now no matter what you're going through. All you have to do is simply trust him. Trust him. Trust his strength in your weakness. Trust his timing. Trust his process. He is God and we are not. As I was preparing my message, all I could think about was this hymn that I sang so much and you have sung maybe many times. And it goes like this, simply trusting every day. What a great line, right? Trusting through a stormy way. Even when my faith is small, I love this, trusting Jesus, that's all. Even when my faith is small. We're still trusting him. Even when we don't understand, we're still trusting him. Trusting as the moments fly. Trusting as the days go by. I like this. Trusting him, whate'er befall. Trusting Jesus. That's all. That is all. Listen, God is doing something big here in Elijah's life. And this story is just a small part of it. And God is trying to do something in your life as well. You may not see it. You may not understand what it is that you're going through. But whatever God is doing right now, he's he is preparing you for something greater. He's preparing you for something greater. Listen, would you trust in his strength this morning? Would you turn to him? Would you trust in him? 
Right now you may feel weak. Right now you feel like I cannot continue on in this way. I cannot get through this thing that I'm facing. It's overwhelming to me. Listen, God has all the power that you need. God will be there for you. He will work through you if you would just simply trust in Him. We hope today's message was a help to your relationship with God. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will for your life.